Let's uh, unite our hearts together one more time for prayer, and then I'd like to uh, share the scriptures with you this morning. Father, we thank you for this wonderful gospel message that we just sang about. Lord, we are humbled that you have given this church the responsibility and opportunity to be a shining light in this community. We have been praying that uh, you would honor us to bring those who, who need Jesus to us and that we would be able to share the truth we just sang about with them and give them the hope. Father, it's been such a joy for Marty and I to sit and talk with various individuals in this church who have given their testimony of how you have used this church and others in this community to come alongside them and give them hope. And Father, you have used this church to provide great teaching and training and development and disciple-making, and we just ask that you will continue to allow us to bring people into that first stage, coming in as the, the new believer, the one who's seeking the truth, that you would give us that privilege. And Father, as we unfold your word today and go to such a precious portion of Scripture, uh, where your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, pours out his heart to those who need to hear the truth of your gospel, that, Lord, we will do justice and that we will be able to uh, clearly deal with the issues that uh, we all face in regard to our sinful hearts and our need for a Savior. We thank you again for this privilege in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It was a lot of fun to have uh, Dr. Oakwin with us uh, last, uh, last week. Uh, he not only adequately opened the Word of God and talked about the value of the heart, uh, he reminded me of the 15 years that God had Marty and myself in the state of Iowa, Indiana uh, as we moved there as young kids, basically, and were involved with a lot of ministry opportunities. But one thing that God used in a great way in our life is the actual church that uh, uh, Dr. O'Quinn is a part of to help me understand the truths of biblical counseling and biblical principles to help my life be more transformed to be like Jesus. And for about 10 of those 15 years, that impact was very, very important to us. And in the last couple of years, uh, God allowed us to actually live very close to that church as we uh, pastored in Crawfordsville, Indiana. And as a result, got the opportunity to spend time with those who are intimately involved with the counseling ministry. One of those individuals is a great mentor of mine. Uh, his name is uh, Randy Patton. And I had the privilege of working alongside Randy as kind of his co-counselor. Now, what that meant to me is he did all the counseling and I was just co, you know. And uh, we, were, we were there, but I learned so much in sitting beside him as we, we talked. And one, one item he would do is when we had a break, he said, let's go for a walk. And we go for a walk around the campus outside and get some fresh air. But then he'd start asking me, so what did you think? What did you learn? All these types of questions that caused me to, uh, to get more engaged in this concept of what he was doing with these counselees. 
And another thing that he did was he would assign almost to every counselee that he had to read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And I, I, quite frankly, I kind of wondered about that initially. Why would he do that? But he explained it this way. He said, first of all, he said, the Sermon on Mount takes about uh, 12 and a half minutes or less than 15 minutes to read. And uh, uh, some people have gotten to the point where they think, wow, if Jesus could get his point across in 15 minutes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, also I remind people that... Uh, Paul preached for a long time until Eutychus fell out of the third-story building, raised him from the dead, took him and, and, and kept on preaching until daybreak. So somewhere in between there we need to settle, right, uh, in regard to the preaching. But it, not only that, the Sermon on the Mount has so many practical issues. And then thirdly, the Sermon on the, on the Mount actually deals with the important heart issues and the value of the gospel as it interacts with them. And what he wanted was not people to just sit and listen and be preached to about the Sermon on the Mount. He wanted them on a daily basis to be reading through that and getting the, the clear truth of the scriptures as they read through the Sermon on the Mount. That was 20 years ago. Uh, most recently, God's been working on my heart as I've been reading through the book, A Quest for More. This is written by Paul David Tripp, and I've included a few of the quotes in there just simply to introduce the concept because I see a tie between what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount and what Paul Tripp is pulling out in regard to uh, the, uh, the quest for more. Here's some things he said. In a fallen world, there is a powerful pressure to constrict your life to the shape and size of your life. There is, no, there is a compelling tendency to forget who you are and what you are made for. It's very interesting because as we preach and as we teach, we tend to encourage people, don't want so much. Learn to be content. And now here is a concept of a quest for more, but you understand it only in the context of it's not a quest for more of this, but more of that. Tripp goes on to say, there's a tendency to be short-sighted, myopic, and easily distracted. There's a tendency to settle for less when you have been created for more. His conclusion for this concept is, there is something expansive, glorious, and eternal that is meant to give direction to everything you do. As the power of the glory of God and the gospel that he has placed in our possession and trusts us to share with others. As we look at that word, and I'll go back just one slide, where he says the tendency to settle for less. And thus the title of our, our message today, The Problem of Settling. The problem isn't that sometimes we want too much, we just want the wrong thing. And we don't want enough of what God has to want. And I believe Jesus starts us thinking on that as early as the time when the multitude gathered around him and he shares that 12 and a half minute sermon called the Sermon on the Mount.
Oops. There. Don't settle, first of all, for externals. Jesus starts out talking to the crowd by saying, uh, after some introductions about how what a blessed life is and, and an exhortation in regard to uh, a lot of things that was very applicable to them, he says this shocking statement. And by the way, all of the Sermon on the Mount is kind of shocking. He has a radical view of, of, of life from the perspective. But he says this, which would have been a total shock to those that were listening. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that so shocking? It's not shocking to us because we've read the New Testament. We've read about those Pharisees and scribes. We have heard about them. We have seen how they interacted with Jesus. We saw what they did to the people that they were responsible for. And we would say, the last thing I want to, would want to be called is a Pharisee. But you, you need to realize, in the time of Jesus, that may not be the way they were seen. In the void of 400 years, when the prophets were there, and now you have set up, at the time of Jesus, a religious structure. And you know how it is when, when there's... there's, there's man-made decisions to step into a power void, you can come up with all sorts of situations. And what they had now were the Pharisees and the scribes and the Essenes, and they stepped into this. And they were actually, if you would accept my summarization, they were the golden boys, okay? They were the ones that people looked up to. They would have been the ones that had the, uh, uh, the education. The influence. They were connected. They were connected with Rome. And in the eyes of most people and those who followed them, they were the ones connected to God. They were the ones that provided for the people those things that they needed to know about God. They were the ones that maybe Jesus was talking about, you have heard it said. Where did they hear it from? More than likely, the religious leaders of that day as that maybe many of those people weren't able to read some of the stuff for themselves. And so they were dependent on these golden guys, if you would, who had the influence, the money, the connections. And, so and Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds them. And everyone's going, there is no hope, right? There is no hope. I cannot understand how I can reach God. I do not have the influence. I do not have the education. I do not have the understandings. I do not have this. The discipline of the Pharisees was beyond comprehension. They could do all that they could to display to everyone around them how righteous they were. They were not only so great at being able to do what God's word says, they had extra things that they could do. They would be what we would call somewhat super-Christians, if you would use that vernacular, because I wouldn't even consider them Christians in that sense. But they were the super-religious people. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that. Where is the hope in regard to it? But what Jesus is saying is he doesn't want the people to be like them and more. It's kind of the opposite. Don't be anything like them. Go more in the other direction, uh, is what Jesus is talking about. Uh, if, you, if you think about what uh, really is being said, it's along with what Jesus says later on in Matthew, as recorded later on in Matthew, where he says, Woe to you, 
Pharisees, hypocrites, you, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. If you're there in Matthew 23, if not, I'll read it for us as we, as we look at more of what he says. He says, uh, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And just prior to that, in verse 27, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's or dead people's bones and uncleanness. So in a sense, you, you have a situation where, where the Pharisees now are, in a sense, being called out directly. He has shared a lot of these uh, parables that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And I think it's interesting, one of the parables, uh, the disciples come up and said, the Pharisees are kind of offended by the parable that you shared. <laughs> no, duh. <laughs> it was kind of intended that way. Uh, and for they, he, now he comes out specifically in his series of woes that they have, in a sense, a great external, but not much for the internal. They are like this golden apple that is rotten on the inside. One way to be able to make something that doesn't look very good is to throw a little paint on it. <laughs> what does it say? Paint covers a multitude of sin, right? Uh, restore a house and you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> uh, just throw some plaster on it, paint over it, etc. But yet people were doing that with their lives. That the Pharisees were attempting to live by externals, even though their hearts were totally rotten, dead man's bones is how that Jesus described it. Emptiness, hollow, and uh, here's our little gold spray paint that uh, they were able to use to ensure that others would see the glitter when God did not. When instead of being the holy ones, they were actually the hollow ones. And Jesus is attempting to let those who are listening you could say those who have ears to hear, that uh, there is an important thing not to settle for the same things that the Pharisees settled for. The Pharisees settled for the externals. And the next portion of the uh, Sermon on the Mount goes into several different items, and I will not take the time to, to explore each of them in detail. Each one could be a sermon in themselves. But I wanted to give us the full context of what Jesus is talking about as he's unfolding these truths to help individuals go from that concept of hollowness and recognize what they truly needed. A further pursuit of the law wasn't going to help them. They needed a Savior. They needed grace. They needed the gospel. But in order for them to see that, he wanted to go at some of the actions or the attitudes that were being espoused and lifted up and thrown in their face and pushed and uh, the primary things that they would face day after day uh, as they attempted to try to reach to God and were constantly shown, you must, you must, you must. You have heard, you have heard, you have heard. And Jesus said, You've only heard the external part. You've not heard what would really impact your heart. 
And so the first thing he talks about, or what I have just summarized, is social laws. The biggies, right? Don't murder someone. Don't commit adultery. Don't get a divorce. And Jesus, in a sense, addresses each of those and said, you get all hung up on the outward aspects of these things. Now, none of these things are things that he was endorsing by any fashion, but he's saying you need to go deeper, you need to go outside the hollowness or the glitter that is there and see what is really the issue. The issue is not what the, what the product looks like, it's where the heart or the root is in the situation in what was going on. So when he's dealing with the issue of murder, he says, let's not just talk about murder, let's talk about what leads to murder. Your anger, your bitterness, your resentment, your unwilling to forgive, the way in which you think about people, the way in which you talk about people, and all the things that you allow to happen in your heart, but you say, but I haven't killed anybody, but I haven't done this. But what God sees is what's in our heart. That that same thing that leads to murder of someone is what leads to the way we might talk angrily, bitterly about other people. And Jesus is calling us on that. We're very familiar with the committing adultery in our heart comment that Jesus made. But the concept of saying, well, I didn't commit adultery, but how much of my heart was lusting and how much am I driven by my, my physical desires rather than a desire to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus makes that very clear again. You can the shell, you can decide I can play around with various concepts in my mind and such and not do this. But Jesus is saying that the problem is here. The problem is inside of us. It's not what other people see. It's not what other people experience. It's what our relationship is with God. And he's telling us, even in these big things, like murder and adultery and divorce, and he even says that we have these clauses like they did with the divorce and such, and say, we're doing okay. We're following these different things, but what was it in our heart that was all a part of that type of thing? And he's saying, we need to not be so caught up on what the end product was, not the shell, not what we can just throw some paint on, but what is on in our heart. He goes on to talk about some other areas in the sermon uh, as he deals with things I call like social or relational responses. Uh, look, look at uh, some of the portions there in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5. He talks about the oaths. The oaths, that, that, that idea of being able to say, uh, can I be honest with you right now? Or uh, honestly, I'm telling the truth. And Jesus is saying, why do you need to do that? Why do you have to tell someone you're going to tell them the truth? You know, I do, Scott's honor, I don't have my fingers crossed. He said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just be honest and be in, have integrity in your life from the very get-go. May your integrity outflow from you. Don't come up with some clauses and say, well, I had my fingers crossed. Or be able to uh, manipulate a situation. He's saying that we have this tendency in our relationships not to genuinely love people, but to try to look at ways where we can actually manipulate the situation to get what we want. True integrity is not looking for something that allows me to be able to accomplish what I want without being truly honest with the other person. 
And Jesus calls them on it. And he says, you're going to be hollow if all you do is try to find ways to let people think you have integrity. When the reality, God wants to have an honest relationship with us that will overflow in those areas. Retaliation, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus says, well, why don't you do this instead? Why don't you try to love the person who's doing bad things to you? Radical, right? Radical. The idea of that we would, instead of having this uh, uh, attitude that I can you know, hate those and uh, that are mean to me and be nice to those who love me, he's saying you're just acting like those who have no God, have no Father. And he's encouraging us in this area of retaliation and also flows into this concept of, of prejudice, loving the lovables. When God is encouraging us in our heart, we need to have a desire to love people regardless of how they treat us. And that's a radical concept. And that is something that affects our core, not our outside. We sometimes justify, well, if I do this, it'll be acceptable because a normal person would only be expected to put up with this, this, and this, right? Or a normal person would only expect that I go out of my way to do this or that. And then there's that individual who does something totally radical. And they go out of their way and they do it. And you look at it and you say, oh, but that wouldn't be expected. And that's when you see. That's when you see how much of my life that I do is because I think it's expected. Because other people will think I'm not as nice. Or other people won't think that I'm willing to, to serve. When reality, our motivation needs to be, I love him, he loves me, he says, for then I should overflow and love other people. And to be able to do these things. And it's not about what actually happens out here, although it will impact that. It's what's going on inside of here. He goes on to talk uh, about the religious expressions. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For when you uh, will have, then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This is probably the most common one we see in regard to. He challenges them regarding their prayer, their giving, and all these religious kind of activities. And we, we will check ourselves on those type of things. Why am I doing this stuff? Why am I serving? Why am I uh, involved with this type of ministry? Why am I uh, doing whatever I might do? Why am I praying at this particular time? And we're constantly trying to check ourselves to ensure that I'm not doing it so other people think I'm more spiritual than what I am. But for the Pharisees, that was the part of the golden glitter on them. They wanted to ensure that people saw them having connection with God. And, and we might not be so bold to do that or, 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 or whatnot, but how often are we concerned about how this looks and how we are going to be seen by other people when God wants our, our hearts to be investing for his glory? And that's where he kind of transitions into that second point where he says, don't settle for the temporary. After he's talked about the social issues, how we interact in relationships, and how we do religiously in front of people, kind of gets really into the nitty-gritty, if you would. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves come in and steal. 
We know those things can happen. We put locks on our doors for a reason. Uh, we put Z-Bart on our, or whatever, on our cars for a reason. Uh, we try to keep, uh, uh, you know, bugs out of our clothing for a reason. We want to keep things to, uh, as long as they're in style, as much as we can, because things tend to decay. And so Jesus is making that very clear that we should not lay up for ourselves treasures that don't last, things that will wear out, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, those things which are eternal, those things which God has designed for us to be able to not only invest in for now, but invest in for all eternity. He goes on to, uh, to, to say this, he says, uh, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I, I believe Dr. Oakwin did an excellent job talking about how our heart is impacted and how our heart impacts other elements of our lives and how that uh, our heart is the central of who we are. I remember early in my learning as a junior high, senior high, and sitting under my Sunday school teacher. And he used this phrase, and I wasn't sure what it meant until I got a little bit older. He says, the heart, your heart is the you that is you. That was profound. But as I studied more of the heart, it is the me that is me. It is who I am, is what my heart is. And God says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Paul Tripp, says, uh, Paul Tripp says it this way, uh, you become like the treasure that you seek. And as I thought about what types of things are treasures that are in my heart at times, and I thought about how reputation is so important to me and how that um, it would be a tendency to treasure that aspect or maybe even comfort, sustenance, my time, my freedom, be able to make the choices that I want to, my pleasure, to be able to enjoy the things that I want to, my ease. I don't know about you, there's numerous times where I'm working on a project and I said, it shouldn't be this hard. Have you ever said that? It shouldn't be this hard. You know, and goodness, we can sit there and listen to that motivational speaker on the other side while we're sweating, and they said, no pain, no gain. But for some reason, when I'm trying to put this piece of something together, I just don't, that doesn't come to mind right then. I'm thinking this is just shouldn't be this hard, and this doesn't seem a natural way for me to develop personally from this, because I need to get this done, and why do they give these kind of instructions anyways? But as, as we... As we look at these types of things that are in our heart, and maybe as you look at the picture too, you can take the x-ray questions that were pre presented to us last week, and you can look at them maybe from a category in your own life as you think, what is it that tends to be treasured up in my life? What is it I'm most concerned about? What would fill that blank? If only blank, then I would be satisfied or I'd be happy and I'd no longer be fearful, or I won't be anxious. And you look and you, you figure out what would it be that falls into that category, and what is it that treasure of my heart? And Jesus is really causing his audience to think right now, to think about, okay, he just said, probably, if all of this is in real time, you know, eight or nine minutes ago, 
your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And then he says, you know, the treasures of your heart, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And people are trying to put this all together and try to understand what is it that he's trying to say in regard to my heart and would they pick up on the fact that they are uh, causing, uh, they are seeking out the same emptiness, the same hollowness that they're seeing displayed in the lives of the Pharisees. And Jesus is offering them more. He's offering them more. As David, uh, Paul David said, and I'll restate this in his book, he says, you become like the treasure that you seek. And then Jesus says this about the whole concept. He first of all says that uh, we are actually blind. The eye is really a gateway for us. Now, I didn't hear anything on an eye this last week, but I was listening to the radio in one of my trips, spent a little bit of time on the road this week, but they, it was a, a gentleman who was the head of a hearing clinic, okay? Uh, I wear hearing aids, and he, they actually own hearing aids from the company in which he owns. And he was talking about how the problem is not our ears. Our ears are not what, they are just something that transfers the information to our brain. We really listen with our brain. And the thought that he was, was, was developed is that when we do not assist our brain to be able to hear properly, we're in a sense challenging our brains in ways they were not designed to be challenged. And it puts stress on the brain. Now, I didn't know all that when I decided to get hearing aids. I decided to get hearing aids because little children could not hear me. And uh, women could not, all right, no, let me say it backwards. I could not hear little children. <laughs> little children didn't want to listen to me. That's the more truth. Um, but I could not hear little children, and I could not hear women's voices. And a lot of guys say, so what's wrong with that? But as grandchildren started coming into our lives, I thought I want to avoid that situation because in those rare occasions where they say something, I would say, what? And they would go, uh-oh, I said something wrong. So they say it back quieter. That always helped. <laughs> and I figured by the third time I asked, they're now crying, and I'm thinking, okay, we got to. And then the alternative was to just simply agree with whatever they said. Oh, yeah, Grandpa said I could. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so... So I pursued it not because I was concerned about what was going on in the brain, as you can tell, uh, but the purpose of the, uh, you know, of the interview was to let us know that this thing is very important to help the brain get the information in the way it needs to get it, because otherwise it's not clear. Jesus is saying it this way. He's saying, when our eye is dark, we're not giving the heart the information that it needs. And in a sense, it just makes whatever light should be blackness. And when we are not motivated by the gospel or driven by the gospel, or our hearts are not inclined to the gospel and the truth of God's word, uh, that which should be giving us light is not. And that's what he's saying in regard to that. And he goes on to say, not only are we blind in that sense, he gives the illustration that no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And the importance of recognizing that uh, uh, we can't have money as our master. There's books out there, How to Master Your Money. Um, uh, there should be books out there to say, make sure you're not the 
the master is not your, your money is not your master. Uh, I was listening to someone say the other day he had some cash and he bought something and he says, money talks. And I said, yeah, it usually does. It says, bye-bye. <laughs> but, um, but money also tells you some other things. It tells you what to do. The love of money is the root of all evil. Why? Because when money helps us make a lot of our decisions, we are being under the master of that money. How do we know when we're the master under that money? Money tells on that too. The, the money tells us, tells on us all the time. Our money tells where our priorities are. Our money, how we spend, someone has told me, and this is years ago, okay, because uh, it doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't uh, reconcile right now, but back in the day when people actually had checkbooks and kept checkbook registers, there's three of you out there now, I think, right now, but they said you can tell what is important in a person's life by reading their check register. Now you can go online and look on their you know, bank statements or whatever. But the point is, is that money can become our master. And Jesus says, you can't serve both. You can't serve both God and money. Why can't we do that? Because uh, God has designed us to follow him, not that which will control our lives. God wants us to be able to experience not only the freedom from money, but to experience the liberty that comes by following following him. I'll just go one more illustration and then we'll kind of summarize all this. He also calls, talks about the, I call it a fatherless situation. And there's a reason I come to this conclusion. He talks about anxiety. He talks about worry. He talks about the fa fact that I, I'm, I'm, uh, you're, you're concerned about this and you're concerned about that. And he gives some illustrations in regard to why they shouldn't be. But then he starts summarizing it this way as he wraps it all up as to why you shouldn't be anxious. He says, the Gentiles seek after all these things. The Gentiles worry about whether they can add to their height or their age or prolong their age or whether they can uh, have these various things and be clothed a certain way. He said, Gentiles seek after these things. And you could almost put in there, Gentiles seek after these things because they do not have the Heavenly Father that you have. Okay? Because you look at the next thing he says, he says, and your Heavenly Father knows all the knows you need them all. God knows you need them all. And when we operate our lives in anxiety and fear about those things that our money can't buy, the lack of the money that we have, the, the, uh, the things that we cannot grasp or have, we are basically forgetting the fact that our Heavenly Father knows all that we need. Okay? And then also, as James has said, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And that the Father wants to give to us. And the Father wants to provide for us. But when we make something else our God, something else in our heart is yearning for it, uh, the words that are used in the quest for more is we take the great kingdom and provision of God and we shrink it down like that old shrink wrap just right around us. Sometimes when we're packing and we've got to put a lot of stuff in, Marty will do this trick where she puts them in some plastic, sucks all the air out of it and stuffs it down, puts it in there, and we hope it comes back to shape when it's all done. But the idea is it gets it in the suitcase. And uh, 
Sometimes I think we're shrink-wrapping our lives because we say, if I only have this, and if I only had this, I'll be happy. And God is saying, no, you need Jesus. You need uh, a heart that is leaning towards me. You need a heart that is doing that which lasts for all eternity, investing in that which lasts for all eternity. Let me just settle, uh, talk about settling here, what God really wants us to have. He wants us to have a genuine substance, not just a shell. If you're here today and uh, you're seeking some way to help you fit in a religious system. I was there at one point. Back uh, when I was a young man and I was first time I decided I was going to go to Sunday school with someone and go to church, I looked at how these, these churchgoers behaved and I thought, I've got to figure out how to fit in. I'm going to figure out how to read the Bible. I'm going to figure out how to read their songs. I'm going to figure out how to answer their questions, figure out how to, to be like them. And all of that, I, I realized later on, was just working on a shell. I was working on a shell. And you know what? It was working against getting the real substance. Because the more I worked on the shell, the less I considered what I truly needed. And I thank that that he loved me enough to take me up to that uh, that camp, and not allow me to just focus on the shell, and that I was actually to get the genuine substance of realizing Jesus Christ came into this world to die for my sins and give me an opportunity to live forever with him, but not only that, to live abundantly and enjoy what he has given to us to enjoy. God doesn't want us to just have a shell. He wants us to have substance. He also wants investments that yield. I just want to encourage you that investments come in a lot of fashion. Jesus is talking about where's your treasure. Jesus is talking about serving God or serving money. And we, we have a lot of responsibilities in regard to the money that we have. God gives us some options on that. He encourages us to be good stewards of that money. And we should look to see where do we invest that. And my desire and my prayer and the reason that I'm here is that I want to convey my belief that this church is worth investing in financially. This church is worth investing in because of the potential of being able to reach people for Jesus Christ. And I just exhort you that as you consider what is going to be your investments and what kind of yield you're going to get, to recognize that investing in a ministry designed to reach out to people for Jesus Christ is a good investment. And that God says he will reward accordingly. And I want you to, to think about, I, when I talk with our, when we're going doing missionary stuff, and as we go to churches, we encourage them, as Paul did, he said, it's not that we have a need, because we've got a God provides all our need. But when we invest in something, it gives, it gives fruit to our account. And I just want to encourage you, as you invest your time here in this church, as you invest your talents and your ministries and your finances in this church, that is fruit that goes to your account. And I want to let you, you know, I just want to reinforce that God wants you to make investments that truly yield and yield towards the gospel. Thirdly, he wants us to have freedom. Working on the shell is not freedom. Working on the externals is not freedom. 
trying to live a life that impresses other people is not freedom. Being able to know that you're pleasing your Father in heaven is freedom. I was up with the teenagers on Wednesday night, and uh, they, they put me on what they call the hot seat. Some of you have probably been there before, okay? What they do is just ask you random questions, and they're good at this. They are professionals at this. I think they even do this to each other, okay? And uh, so they're asking me all these questions, and one that they asked that I thought was uh, uh, really helpful, they asked, what's your favorite verse? And so I told them, Galatians 5.13. And they just stared at me. I said, so what does it mean? What is it? <laughs> uh, well, look it up. No, uh, Galatians 5.13. For brethren, you've been called into liberty. Only do not use liberty for an opportunity for the flesh, but by love serve one another. God has given us such freedoms. God has given us the freedom to be able to recognize we don't have to try to impress him. Jesus took care of all that. We just need to learn how to take his love and be able to see it uh, be expressed in other people's, uh, to other people. And then peace. That anxiety he talks about, those difficulties of being able to see how I can move on from this point. How is God going to answer this question? How is this going to happen? I've got this, this, and this, and this. How am I going to get it all done? Been there, done that just recently. And, uh, and, and just have to say, God, I'm leaning on you. God, I'm trusting in you. And to know that I can have a peace, that my God will help me in the way that he wants to help me. And what I succeed in, I succeed in because he's given me the grace. And what I fail in, my fail, okay, is okay too. Because I'm doing this not for myself or for the impression of other people, but I'm doing it because I love my God and I trust in him and I'm leaning in him and I'm going to grow as I do all that. He summarizes it this way. In chapter 6, he says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I don't know what all these things are for you. I know what they are in my life. I know what types of things I've gotten anxious about. I know what things that uh, I have unloaded on Marty as we've been traveling or whatever, and I know what those things are that, that I have turned over to Christ and to recognize that I need to stop working with the shrimp, shrink wrap, and I need to start opening my life to see the kingdom of God and the great vastness he wants me to accomplish for his gospel. And in light of that, all these things, will be added unto us. What do I need to do first? What I need to do solely, in a sense, is seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do you care about that? Do you care about his righteousness? Do you care about his kingdom? I just want to encourage you to think about that because there is a tension, there's a real tension there. We have a tendency to want to just keep our own kingdom. Maybe glance a little bit at God's kingdom. But am I seeking? Are you seeking? His kingdom. Father, I thank you so much for just the privilege that we have to look at the, the teachings of a, our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I, I, I realize that I'm inadequate to fully share everything that your son talked about in that sermon. And Father, there are so many things that could be unfolded and applied and such, but if we could just take away the idea that we want to treasure up things that cause us to settle, 
things that we think are so big to us right now, but in the scope of all of your eternity, they're just things that are going to be impacted by moths and rust and thieves. And, and Father, I pray that as our dear friends go out into this world this afternoon, throughout this week, that they will be able to uh, lean into you and experience uh, the, the peace, the joy, the hope that you have for them. Father, that as we are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that we will help people lean into that, that we will take our discouraged friends and bring them to you and encourage them to, to seek the fullness of the, the substance of a relationship with you and that we'd be satisfied in that rather than the things that we think we need to chase. Help us, Lord, to encourage one another and that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.